Father, thanks just for allowing us to have a journey in the gospel uh, according to St. Luke. And help us today just see things 2,000 years on as appropriate as they were back then. Help us try to understand what it was like for the disciples to encounter Jesus as Messiah, but someone that they'd known just as a friend as well. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So I want to spend a little bit of time today just doing a brief recap on Luke. As Adrian said, he'd asked me to do a few things for the website. I've done two on Luke, and there's going to be a third one, which is really the idea of Luke Acts, because Luke, Luke, as you know, wrote two books, and they're like an introduction to Christianity, plus an account that he gave of the life of Jesus. So today we're focusing on the confession of Peter. Here's the memory jog. Uh, you know, you often get this question, how many gospels are there? Yes, four. No, there's not. There's one. There's one gospel, but four accounts. Now, it's not playing with words here. It's important because sometimes when we remember, as uh, Chris did last week about the little boy and the fishes, we sort of tend to think, oh, goodness, it was only in John that that happened. I thought that was in another one. Uh, And so it's important when we're looking at Luke to say, why did Luke focus on this? Why did Luke say things in this particular way? The three Gospels that we have in order, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, weren't written in that order. Mark was probably the first one written. But because, you know, Matthew was important, he was Jewish, it's a longer gospel that appeared first. But these three first gospel accounts more or less tell the same type of story about Jesus. You know, his birth, his three-year ministry, his death and resurrection. And then John comes in, and it's not really an account of Jesus' life. It's written maybe 60 years after the death of Jesus from a very different perspective. It's important also that they're not biographies, because if you've read any biographies, they sometimes give you an account in minute detail of what somebody did when they were on holiday for a weekend. And I really am not interested in that, you know, uh, and I, I flick on if I'm being honest. So these aren't biographies, they are selective accounts. So it's a bit like you're talking to someone who's come back from holidays, and five people in a family, they'd all give you a different account. And when you bring all the accounts together, you get some sort of perspective of what happened, but you don't get the full story. And that's why it's important when we're thinking about Luke, that Luke wrote for a particular context. Um, I'm in a book club um, with Karen, and we've been in, I think it's about 18 years now. And in that time, we've read almost 200 books. And it's fascinating because some of the books I read to the end only because I was in a book group. And that happened last week's book, so I'm not going to recommend it to anybody. But the purpose is, when you look it up, you sort of try to find, what's the genre? What is it? You know, is it something historical fiction? Is it something that's science fiction? And so on. You you sort of don't open it without first thinking, what's the context? And it's the same with the gospel accounts. And that's why it's important to see, Luke researched this well. He wrote to this guy called Theophilus. It just means the lover of God. We don't know who he was. But Luke was an historian. He researched this well. And what he includes are the sayings of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. It's possible they were circulating in a, in a document. He also used Mark's gospel because the bulk of Mark's gospel is in Luke. So if you've ever remember back to when you were writing an essay and you had all these books across your desk, or nowadays Dr. Wikipedia, um, but then you would have used this, and this was your main document. Well, for Luke, Mark was his main document. Mark was written maybe 20 years before, so he was using Mark, and most of Mark is in Luke. And the reason I'm saying this, it's important then to see that Luke was, uh, was actually looking at the Gentiles, not the Jews. So when you read Matthew, you'll get a gospel account that's very much Gentile, sorry, Jewish-focused. A lot of the prophecy fulfillment are in Ma- Matthew's gospel. 
Mark can't wait to get you to the cross. So he's got 16 chapters. The first eight are everything that Jesus ever did, and then the last eight are a passion account. Someone has said Mark's gospel is a passion account with an introduction, very close to the truth. Whereas Luke takes much more time, and he's trying to help Gentiles understanding of, of who this person is that the Jews look to as the Messiah. And for him, it's important, it's history, it's researched. But it's also important that history is his story, that it's the story of salvation in the present time and for the future time. And so Luke's bringing us back consistently to that particular point. And for Luke then, the importance was that Jesus was empowered by God's Spirit. We find ourselves in this particular section of Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 to 18. It's called The Road to Jerusalem. The first bit was really getting to know Jesus, and now he's turned his face to Jerusalem and death. And the next nine chapters take us on that road with the disciples. We also have a very important role for community. And as Adrian talked today about community, Chris talked today about community. And the Greek word, one of the Greek words for community is koinonia. You know, it's, it's the people who have fellowship together. And the church just means the called out people because the church is always about people. So that's why Luke was focused on community and crowds. He also had a particular focus for outcasts. And in those days, women were outcasts. And if women had a particular ailment or weren't married or had lost their husband, they were particularly sort of thought of as outcasts. Luke wanted to make sure that everything he said showed that Jesus had his gospel for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Luke epitomizes the good news for the poor. And if you're writing a, a social justice type account, Luke's where you would go to to find that. A hundred individuals actually appear in the gospel according to Luke, believe it or not. That's not counting the 12 disciples and not counting the crowds. So on the one hand, he has this fantastic focus on crowds, but then it's as if the director's cut happens and it focuses in on an individual, one person. So you see the crowds and then suddenly the camera pans in on one person. Could be someone who's demon-possessed. It could be a woman with a son who's died and she doesn't have a husband. You know, it could be someone who wants to talk to Jesus. It could be someone who is ritually unclean. And there's this real focus on joy. And, you know, when we're thinking about the Christian faith in the last two years, where joy out there hasn't been much in supply, it's brilliant whenever as Christians we can still hold true to the fact that in all of this there are little grace notes if we look for them. In all of this God comes down and there's little joy moments. You know when you meet people when we're able to take our masks off. How sad is it that we're looking forward to taking masks off as a real change for life? The other thing is some things are only found in Luke and you might know this. The census is only ever in Luke. The shepherds only appear in Luke. Simeon only appears in Luke. Jesus at the temple at the age of 12, only in Luke. The ascension, believe it or not, only appears in Luke. So if it hadn't been for Luke, we wouldn't have known any of this stuff. He has a number of parables that only appear in Luke. The prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Remember again, we're thinking of the Gentile mission. That's why the Jew and, and so, you know, the priest and the Levite passed on the other side, but it was a Samaritan, someone who was the other, the outcast, stopped and administered to this guy. Rich man and the Lazarus, the rich fool, the Pharisee and the tax collector. So when we're coming to think about Luke today, I want to draw attention to why this was important for Luke. So here's the reading. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, 
Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Director's cut. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in Greek, there's two words for you, you to include everybody and you that's one individual. This is the one that was for everybody, so he was talking to all of his disciples at this point. But Peter answers as a spokesperson. So he wasn't looking at Peter and saying, Peter, what about you? But Peter looked around, nobody else was speaking, and Peter sort of jumps in with two feet as usual, and he says, God's Messiah. Here's Jesus' answer. He strictly warned them not to tell anyone. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said, as if that wasn't enough. So their heads are, I don't know what's happening. What? You're the Son of Man. What's all this going on? He goes on. For you, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very life? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and the angels." This is just amazing. So you can imagine the director's cut moving back and the disciples are sort of going, what on earth is going on here? And the Gentile readership, what is going on here? So there's a change in Luke's gospel at this particular point. The first nine chapters have been Jesus engaging with crowds. And in crowds, he's met individuals, of course, but mostly he's surrounded by crowds. This was his first year of ministry. This was his year of obscurity. People didn't really know who he was. He didn't have any training. He wasn't a formal rabbi, and yet he spoke with conviction, not like one of their prophets. The things that he did, he didn't take glory to himself. He healed people and told them to go off and not talk about it. But now there's this turning point in emphasis. Jesus had his face set for Jerusalem, and from now on, he knows time's limited in this next year or so, and he needs to work with his disciples. So it's not that crowds disappear from Luke's gospel at this point, but the focus becomes one of teaching and walking with and alongside his disciples to try to help them understand what it's going to be when he's not around anymore. So the context of today's reading is Jesus had called the 12 disciples. He had fed the 5,000, and now we have Peter's confession. After this, he predicts his death, as I read to you. And then, as Adrian reminded us, after that follows the transfiguration. So we're in his first year of his ministry, maybe towards the end. He's on this road looking towards going to Jerusalem. We have an account of a miracle, and it's only one of two miracles that all four gospel accounts record. The only other one is the resurrection. So for some reason, the feeding of the 5,000 is so important that even John records it. So that's a seminal moment. Something's going on here that, that's as if it's underscored, underlined, and in bold characters. Don't miss it. Then we have Peter's confession in all four gospel accounts. And then the transfiguration in all four gospel accounts, sorry, all four syn three synoptics. So this is a very important part in the life of Jesus, significant enough for the four gospel writers to record these first events. So it's drawing attention to why is this significant? Here's what Matthew says. When Jesus came to this region, he said to his disciples, who do people say I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter again answers, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
once again, he says, don't do anything about it. Mark's gospel, the urgent one, the one getting us to the cross, Jesus and his disciples are around Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that I am? John the Baptist and so on, exactly the same answer. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter again, you are the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. See the pattern? All three gospel accounts, and even John, because this was a slightly different way of John telling the story. He's near Capernaum. His disciples realized that people were now a bit panicked about something that was going to happen. He was an insurrectionist. Do you want to leave too, says Jesus? You can see again the director's cut, the disciples looking around, nodding to each other, and Peter jumps in with two feet again. Who'd we go to? You've got the words of life. We've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Slightly different take on the same story, but it's extremely important. And then you can see Luke, as we talked about, Jesus was praying in private. None of the gospel account writers tell us that. And that word only appears here in the whole New Testament. So something's going on here that even though Jesus is with his disciples, he still withdraws. Something significant's happening in Jesus' life. So he goes off, he's praying in private, and the disciples come alongside him. And when he sees them coming, he's probably thinking, okay, right, who do you say I am? So he comes out of this private prayer, he engages with the disciples, and they give him the story. Well, there's all sorts of people, people say you are. And then he says, but what about you guys? In other words, it's a politician's answer. You know, you haven't told me what you think. Tell me what you think. And then Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples the Messiah of God. Now that's interesting, and we'll come back to that. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. That don't tell anybody seems to be a bit odd. And a lot of people, theologians, call that the messianic secret. Jesus is Messiah, but he doesn't want anybody to know. Why? Well, he could be misunderstood. It's possible that when he talked about himself as the son of man, the Jewish readers would have understood that in terms of Daniel. And if you want to freak yourself out, read some passages in Daniel. Because the Son of Man's a real strange character, going to come back at the end of times, and it's a bit like an army general, and there are going to be all sorts of fighting and Satan's involved. So he didn't want to be misunderstood. So when he talked about himself as the Son of Man, it was only to the disciples. It's possible the crowds would have taken him and crowned him king. It's possible that the Romans and the Jews might have heard, here's a king, here's a Messiah, what's going on here? We need to put him down. I like to think that it was probably because he knew his time hadn't come yet. He still had the journey to Jerusalem. There was a particular purpose in his life in that journey. But for whatever reason, this secret, it, met, it, it stopped at the end of the first year. And when he's in his year of popularity, he seems more happy for people to tell about him. He's more happy to allow people to be evangelists, if you like, because he's had time to explain what the Messiah was. So the disciples had been with Jesus. They'd been expecting this military Messiah. Matthew says, you're the Messiah. Mark says, the Messiah. John says, the Holy One of God. But Luke, because he's talking to Gentiles, said, you're the Messiah of God, in case you miss it up. See, not the Jewish Messiah. So Luke is placing us right in the center. What type of Messiah are you? You're God's Messiah. In other words, you're representing God and you've come from God. Now, it's interesting that Luke leaves out a whole passage of Mark at this point. I don't know if you remember, there are two accounts of feeding large numbers. There's a feeding of 4,000, and then there's a feeding of 5,000. 
Some people think it was the same thing, but people couldn't count properly. Well, actually, they happened in different places and at different times. But Mark doesn't, doesn't really want to record the two. Sorry, Luke doesn't really want to record the two. Maybe it was too similar. And for the Jewish audience, fine. But for the Gentiles, no. Praying in private was important for Luke to explain to the Gentiles that even though he was God's son, he needed time with his father on his own. That was an important thing to recharge his batteries. And then who do the crowd say that I am? And then the focus on the disciples themselves. But what about you guys? Then Jesus goes on to explain the type of Messiah he is. He's the son of man. So he's tying into the Old Testament to this person coming back at the end of days. He's the type of Messiah who's not going to lead a military insurrection. Instead, he's going to offer himself voluntarily to death. He's going to be rejected by the religious heavyweights of the day. No, they were looking forward to the Messiah, but this was not the type that they were looking for. So they were going to reject him, and he must be killed. But here's the note of joy again. On the third day, he's going to come back. Now, if I'd been writing the gospel account, I probably would have stopped at that point, because the next bit's a bit hard. Because Jesus now says, that's the first bit. Let's park that. If this is true, then what are the consequences for you, the 12? <clears throat> Whoever wants to be my disciple will deny themselves, take up their cross. Now, that's a strange thing, because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. So how would they have understood that? They would have understood that in terms of they've seen the crucifixions that would have lined the roads to Jerusalem at times. People who were, who were in insurrection, people who perhaps were seen to be people against the Jewish tradition or the Romans, people who were difficult were crucified on a cross. Now, maybe that was in their head. Goodness, does he mean us to die on a cross? And you've got to follow me. And then he goes on to talk about if I embarrass you, if I make you feel ashamed in front of people. Remember Peter? Do you know this man? No. You were with this man? No, I wasn't. You do know this man. Three times he denied him. He was ashamed to have been seen and understood as a friend of Jesus. So Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, on the final day, it's going to go back to you because I'm not going to recognize you. Goodness, wow. <laughs> What about that then? H.G. Wells, who you wouldn't sort of think of as a Christian evangelist, said this, I'm an historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And not from someone who would have described himself as a secular humanist. Napoleon Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we founded great empires, but Jesus alone founded his empire on love. And to this day, millions would die for him. This is Napoleon, a couple of hundred years back. Millions would die for him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. So you see, he's moving slightly. Something's going on with this guy. And then watchman knee. God will answer all our questions in one and only one way, by showing us more of his son. So when Jesus opens up to these disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say, Messiah. He's saying, if that remains in your head, then it becomes a theological somersault. You've got to make a leap into your heart to understand what does that actually mean for you if you really believe I'm Messiah? 
Today, the problem is a lot of people have a real issue still with Jesus. It's 2,000 years ago. He was just a man. How can God die on a cross? I've been so often asked that. If he was God, how did he die? That, that sort of doesn't work out for me. Jesus failed. Jesus Christ superstar is a bit like the cross was a failure. It was inevitable. It was because of who he was. He brought death on himself. It wasn't because he was God. And some people think he was a good teacher, but in the end he failed. He's a good example. Lots of people believe Jesus is a great example. He didn't really rise again. Well, we deal with that every time we come to Easter. He's only one way. You get to the top by climbing different ways to the same mountain. Mountain's God. Jesus is one way. There's all sorts of other ways. Or I just don't understand them. I actually like the last one. I don't understand them. Because the other people are offering excuses almost to really confront the issue, who do you say that I am? Peter confronted it. The disciples confronted it. They couldn't prove it, but they were willing to take that step. Because if he is the Messiah, when he died, he paid the punishment for our sin. And when he cried out on the cross, which we translate into English, it's finished. It's a Greek word that was put on a prison cell whenever the prisoner had paid the sentence. It means paid in full. And it's in a tense in the Greek language that means an act in the past with consequences in the present. In other words, it just didn't happen 2,000 years ago. That event reaches forward into history, God's history, the whole history of mankind. And that means I'm no longer condemned. But if he simply had died, that would have been it. But when he rose on the third day, death was overcome. The devil was overcome, and victory was both proclaimed and won. And I have some issues at times when we go out trying to say we're trying to win victory still. It's not true. We don't need to win anything more. We need to proclaim. We need to advance to places and claim it for Jesus, yes, but in the sense it was already his. It's not as if we're going in there and taking it from the enemy. The wholly inhabited universe is Jesus, is God's. Our message is to proclaim the Messiah's ownership, his reign, his kingdom. C.S. Lewis, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, classic C.S. Lewis, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You've got to make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, the Messiah, or he's a madman or something worse. So here's the question for all of us. Who do you say he is? Let's pray. Father, um, to be transported back 2,000 years ago and to be in the company of the disciples, to be faced with that question, who do you say I am? It's very easily just to assent to that theologically. It's much more difficult to say, well, what does that actually mean as a consequence for me in my life? To deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Father, help us to do that on a daily basis. Help us to be filled with the same spirit of joy that Jesus both had and distributed. And help us as a church to grow in that faith and stature to proclaim the Lordship of Christ in the world. For Jesus' sake.